Hi, welcome to In Between Stations Radio. We're going to do a rebroadcast here. Uh, we had we had some big problems with this. Uh, it was a three-hour live broadcast on Mary Shelley, Mary Shelley's uh, gothic novel Frankenstein, and uh, there was a lot of problems with it. And then we did it, put it in the form of a podcast. So you could hear at least part of it. And, and, and in the process, we lost a lot of the original broadcast and so we and we decided to put at least these two parts together uh, the the first part I and Murky talk a, a bit about Frankenstein then we move into the we move into the 1816 uh, event where uh, Frankenstein the idea Mary Shelley came up with the idea and then began the the you know, started the novel Frankenstein out during this time period in 1816 in Geneva so there's going to be uh, some things lacking here in the full broadcast, but at least you have the two parts together and you can listen to it. And it kind of matches up with our uh, last broadcast we did on, is, is there too much technology? Are we up against the wall uh, in terms of uh, having too much? Too much email, too much cell phone. Uh, we're driven uh, in our, our work to do more, to produce more, to have a better year. Uh, and there's just so much technology that it's overwhelming. We can't even pay attention to it. We can't even pay attention to our, our texting formats on the phone, our emails. This will uh, merge later broadcast down the road where we talk about uh, more about things like uh, Kurzweil's uh, The Singularity where uh, machines, uh, computers will surpass human intelligence and the combination of human intelligence and computers will make us a million times smarter than we are now which, you know, I've said before is a mind-blower statistic, but uh, exponentially that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Can, can we handle all this? Or is commercialization uh, pushing us in, in a direction that makes Mary Shelley's original premise of Frankenstein more realistic? Are we as a species becoming like Frankenstein? We no longer have a creator. Science is our creator. Technology is our creator. And then as consumers, we buy more and more without any logic behind other than just to have more. And we get more and more in debt. Uh, And we work longer hours. And we're trying to just survive. And and then eventually don't even have the free time to spend with each other, with our children, because we're so busy trying to to maintain bills. And, And then the pressure of competition has become extreme, especially with computers merging into that uh into that equation now and, and being pushed by corporations to, to manipulate us not only psychologically but to pressure us where we're constantly barraged by advertisements, by newer versions of cell, cell phones, newer versions of computers. Just It's just constant and things that we really don't need we end up getting anyway. Uh, so this will look more into and, and then also this term uh, which I'm going to look at in uh, I think a few more broadcasts, the great loneliness. And this is one of the problems of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, is when the monster is made, he becomes incredibly lonely. This, the loneliness and the lack of love is what drives him to his insanity. And you wonder with these, with these problems in shopping malls, with their shootings, and other places, if, if people just reach a point like, like the monster in Frankenstein does, where, where they, they, no, there's no meaning to life anymore. Uh, and, and, and you can't you can't put up with the pressure of everyday demands and so you just lose it you ju- your mind snaps uh, you have a schizophrenic uh, crack up and you go into a mall and you shoot a bunch of people or you blow something up 
this ex existential crisis. Does modern man even know what he is anymore? Is he connected to a natural environment or a synthetic one? And so, anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of our underlying themes in the in-between stations is addressing the existentialism, the, the crisis of modern life and has corporations and commercialization and science itself, in terms of the scientists that use the science, pushed us to a point that we no longer know what we're doing or where we're going. There's just this immense confusion. All we can do is meet the demands of, of, of our bills, meet the demands of the pressure, and the, and the pressure's just too much on us. And so are we indeed a, a sort of Frankenstein's monster in the mirror. Are we becoming what uh, Bill Gates said way back in the early 90s, that we were already at that time, he felt, half machine? You know, in the middle of such a thing, are we indeed incredibly lonely creatures? That the technology is, is what's giving us company. The, the robot, you know, the TV, the cell phone, you keep looking at the cell phone, you keep seeing what the text is, but there's no one really there. There's not any flesh and blood. Uh, and so and, and it's, it's easier to set in your house. It's easier to set in your office and send out emails and do these things that's not connected to real human beings. And as the case is with a lot of my friends, you're just experiencing what, what I call uh, the great loneliness. There's no living thing there. Uh, and it's being simulated by synthetically by machines, by technology, by cell phones, by emails, by corporations, by endless amounts of ads. People are smiling and acting like they're happy, but it's all about buying and buying and having more and more, and yet the, the basic necessities of life are neglected. Love, warmth, kindness, security, um, even being able to make your own food, to plant your own food. You're, you rely on the grocery store. You rely on machines to synthetically feed you. The neon mother. I mean, indeed, have we become a reflection of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein monster. And, and, and the whole frightening thing about that book is, he's, is and, and I think there's so much empathy there for this creation because no one lo loves him. He can't find the family. He can't find the companionship that he needs. He's lost in the technology. He's been created, and, and science is all he has. And, and it hasn't made him happy. And so, yeah, let's, let's, let's go into this, uh, these, uh, this Frankenstein story in two parts. Uh, it doesn't go in extreme detail, but it does, it does present you with some of the, uh, some of the baselines of the novel and Mary Shelley.
Flagstaff, Arizona, United States of America. This is In Between Stations Radio on 3731 kHz in the 80 meter band from Flagstaff, Arizona, United States of America. So, Murky, have you ever read the novel Frankenstein? I don't think I've ever asked you this. Or, or, or have I? Yeah, I have. So, how many times? Once, twice, or... And recently? Several times. So, I take it you you like the book? Yes, and no. Right, because it's, it's pretty uh, unpleasant in some places. Uh graphic um pretty dark right so what did i mean what 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 do you what do you think of the book well i mean what do you think of of frankenstein that men do what they want and then expect women to hold the world up for them you know come home and sleep with them get them pregnant and have their children (laughs) yeah uh right generally and but but that's I think you're you're talking about uh, the author uh, Mary Shelley, right? Um, yeah. That she virtually held up the world for right. these glorified, extremely talented, world famous men. Uh, Percy Shelley, her her lover and later husband, and Lord Byron, who was like the most famous star uh in the you know in the civilized world uh, you know civilized in parenthesis not the native world but in the you know in europe he was so celebrated and he was a genius he was an extremely talented athlete he was exceptionally good looking close friend uh percy shelley was one of the most talented poets and thinkers of his time but we wouldn't have any of that of course if it wasn't for this incredibly young and brilliant child prodigy even when before she matured into a woman she was ex- she was a genius and um but we owe her just about <laughs> everything because exactly. of her journals and then she was constantly editing and reading and correcting these great poets work and and writing right. i mean it, even at this young age you know because her father was this uh and mother, who died in childbirth, were these geniuses of Europe. And uh, her father had her read hundreds of books, Latin and Greek, and um, he really loved his daughter, and he, and he knew that she was a highly talented individual, and he fed her these things. And, and then all the intellectuals in Europe came to see him and to his household. So she was exposed to this incredibly, incredible amount of thinking. And of course, exactly. these men saw that, and, and um, 
it's not hard to believe once you understand Mary Shelley uh, and you read our merely Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley. She had her mother's last name <laughs> and her her father's last name, and then of course she eventually was known as Mary Shelley. Yeah, so I, she was the beautiful glue that held I, everything together. Right. So, so this is an incredible person. I mean, we don't even. This is before the internet. This is before television, and I, I, I don't think any of Mary's learning was, um, was formal. But she had there was, her her parents were brilliant, and they had this huge library of books in all these languages and literature. And then she was exposed to all these incredibly brilliant people, and they all spoke different languages. This is an amazing person, and, and beyond that, you just have this genius. She's an, she's just so gifted in so many different ways, and and then she's also extremely good looking. We don't have any pictures of her when she was younger, but from descriptions, she was an amazing, amazingly beautiful woman. So I'm sure <laughs> poet Shelley, six seven years older than her. Not only did he see this beautiful woman, but she, she encapsulated just this amazing amount of thought and learning. And here's Shelley, you know, that speaks different languages, is educating Greek and Latin. And he meets this young woman that's 16, I think he's 21, and she can sit and talk with him. And, you know, Shelley, the poet, is idolizes her father and mother. I mean, these, these two people were were incredible geniuses in their time period their their books and their and the way they thought they were extreme radicals too they wanted to break away from mainstream europe and give and liberate men and women give them the the chance to live their lives and be creative and be happy and not be burdened under this uh this huge industrial age complex where we're a normal everyday person like in london was basically a slave unless you're upper class that's the life you lived and even though um, Shelley was from a very wealthy family, he really, he really saw the streets and he saw poverty and he saw the, the problems with people working these horrendous hours, 20-hour days, being enslaved to these, these huge factories where even as a child you started working and not living, not living a very good life, having ill health and horrible conditions. You know, this is before plumbing. This is living in the worst kind of circumstances. And I, um, other authors are but seeing this. But Shelley went into the streets, and he's seen these things, and he knew they were there. And so he wanted to give his family's fortune away to poverty. And the family's like, no, in fact, you're not getting any money. Just go out there and try to survive because we don't want you spending our money. So Shelley was this amazingly uh, gifted student, scholar, uh, well-read, spoke different languages. I mean, he was a genius in his own right, but uh, he, didn't, he didn't like wealth, at least not the status. He did like money. Everybody does, right? So when he met Mary, he, was, he fell in love with her, even though he was married. And that's a long story in itself. But Mary Godwin Wollstonecraft <laughs> was an amazing person. And so, yeah, she virtually did hold up these. She was the editor, uh, the journal taker of these, of these two star darlings, stars of, of um, Europe. And this is a time these guys lived uh, 
you know, they're radical. And so they had open marriages, uh, which didn't turn out for the best. And I think Mary mentions that often, but they did practice free love. They're open to nature and open to other realms of thought because average man in Europe was enslaved. This is before human rights are really, you know, stuff, stuff that we, that we uh, take for granted now that all of us have that just wasn't available. And so Percy Shelley grabbed Mary and her sister Claire and they escaped. Uh, and and wanted to see Europe and feel feel the everyday person and to explore these things that you read about in the books. And so this tremendous journey take, took place in which Mary became the chief editor and journal writer, an amazingly gifted woman, one of the great geniuses. Um, and just now her other novels that she wrote beyond Frankenstein were starting to explore the brilliance of those. And so um, this is a time, even though her mother, and sorry, I'm going on and on here. We're her all mother, used to it. Uh, was a huge supporter of women's rights, of women having the right to think, the women having the right to express themselves, women having the right to have everything that was available to a man, especially um, her sexual rights and her body rights. Uh, and she wrote a lot on this in her... Yeah. Let us do what we want with our own bodies. You don't own my private parts. They belong to me. Yeah, R right. Right. Her husband, Godwin, and, and uh, uh, fell in love with her for her mind. And, and, and he was a brilliant person. Although substantially in debt, <laughs> he just never was a very, a very great business person. But intellectuals of Europe flocked there even after Mary uh, Good Godwin, even after her mother died, um, still all these geniuses came. One of those was this young, gifted Shelley, the poet. And then he knew Lord Byron, who was also a great literary figure, sort of a, a, an idol of the day. And through, they, they just grabbed on to Mary. Mary was the person that documented their lives. And so we have this amazingly in-depth view of these two brilliant men. And which we, what we find out later on is no lesser was Mary herself. I'm sorry I went on and on about this. So is that kind of what you're <laughs> trying to say, um, Murky? Uh, or did I... <laughs> And I know you don't like to talk uh, about things in depth on, on the air. I mean, we have really beautiful conversations you and I do off the air. And as soon as we turn things on live, then you <laughs> clam up, as you always do. Well, as usual, you said it all. But yet, Frankenstein is a brilliant novel by an even more brilliant woman who carried the weight of her times and somehow ours too, the way I see it, Mary Shelley if nothing else challenged the extreme modes of modern science as it was seen then and as she sensed it would do later on as well and how modern science can and does breach the ethical parameters of morality by proclaiming itself as a god and savior of the world while doing all these horrifying and unethical things at the same time and then never fully accepting the responsibility for the darker things that it's done I guess something akin to the insane alchemist who is forever moving forward into an increasingly artificial world while at the same time destroying the natural one you know science isn't good or bad right yeah it's it's just uh, it, it's it's the people that use that methodology that's the ones we have to worry about exactly these folks uh, break a lot of rules sometimes you know the mad scientist right I mean that's that's kind of 
Do you agree with that? Right. Exactly, not the science itself. But the people who are using the science for their own egotistical purposes. So, like, Victor von Frankenstein. Yeah. You know, the, the scientist that... The man that creates the Frankenstein, the monster. Actually, that's a misnomer. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? That's something with a mistake we all make because of Hollywood and movies and films. The monster has no name, and that's one of the big problems in the book for the the creation itself is it has no name and uh, quintessentially no creator as well or not not a divine creator anyway men trying to make life without a woman yet basically birth control leading to robots you know sexy androids who will lay down and take it without complaining and other such mindless shit <laughs> yeah so, what do you think of those science fiction movies like Blade Runner, where you have uh, an android like uh, like Rachel? It bothers and, me. You know, and uh, and uh, what, what's, I'm trying to think of the other one. Um, oh, I can't remember that name. It just came out. Uh, there's been several of them like that, um, where the guy creates this. Uh, I'm trying to think of the one the guy creates this. Uh, robot that's very you know this woman yeah, and uh she uh tricks him and I, I actually kills him and then she escapes into the into the world that doesn't know about her uh like that i mean do you how do you how do you how do you feel about that oh i, I remember ex machina so, something like that ex machina i i'm not i don't you know how i am with pronouncing things uh, but that that was the movie that came out pretty good movie um Except, yeah, it took the slant for men that want android women. <laughs> well, it's pretty sexist since the early days of Hollywood. Especially in science fiction. Starting with the 1927 Silent Metropolis. But yet, how about a mindless guy who will lay there and serve me all night long? And then finally allow me to have some pleasure without talking and panting. You know, instead of the two-minute quickie, and then... It's out for pizza and beer with the boys. <laughs> well, there, there's, uh, there's data on the Star Trek, the Star Trek, the, the new generation, second generation Star Trek. You know, data the android. Uh, he, his, his yeah. whole thing. You know, he pleases women or something like that. On <laughs> off. Yeah, the, right. the male android. Yeah. His big long android tool that pleases all the women on the Starship Enterprise. So, do you think we could reach a time where we have synthetic human beings, androids that um, we can't tell the difference between them and humans? I mean, you, you know, we're taking Mary Shelley's idea, and I mean, maybe it could be a good thing. I mean, what, what, what do you think about that, Murky? Well, I think we are already halfway there. I mean with all these devices, that we plug into our brains and bodies every day. You don't even have to be with a real person anymore. You get it all, on your Walmart 80-inch digital TV screen and all its 10,000 channels. Or on your little 1-inch cell phone screen, you can watch endless movies and yes, 
even the national news telling you about how really real life really is. You know Washington DC telling you what's real and what's fake. Online, making love with every porno queen or king of your choice. Endless texting without no real person ever really being there. Nice, fake pictures of ourselves made with those extra, amazing soft photoshop whiteout filters, made especially for our wrinkled up imperfect bodies and faces. Then you have, your brand new, incredible neon white teeth smile, that outshines the afternoon summer sun. And all of it, yes all of it for only an extra $100,000 a year. Including your new, huge, fake boobs, for both women and men now too. In the male steroids, for the perfect, hard bodies you can show off at the big dating bar, workout gyms that everyone can see you in from Main Street, in their brand new electric cars, that drive so fast that you can be bumper to bumper in seconds, and then get even more pissed at the guy driving, too slow in front of you. And then it's finally, back home to your perfect inside the walls day. Even if it's hotter than hell and 120 degrees outside in the big city. It's not that way, inside your new two bedroom, two million dollar, in dead house, that stays a perfect cozy 75 degrees, and never rains. And then you can get in your big, big bed you never have to get out of. Stay naked all day long make love to a perfect plastic man with a perfect love tool, and work from home with your new perfect plastic body that never seems to grow old. I mean how much of you, is really you? And if it really is you, then why don't you look all the better, than you do? <laughs> oh my god, Murky, that's uh... Yeah, that's uh, some interesting thoughts there, but, but... Yeah, that... But aside from us becoming, you know, uh, more robotic or android-like, yeah. you know, I mean, like, a synthetic human being manufactured, right. uh, like a Blade Runner, in a laboratory that's yeah. um, more perfect and, and better and more friendly and, you know, life's easier with this person and you, you, can, you can never get in fights. And if you do, they're not going to fight back that right you know something like that i mean who doesn't want a perfect life a perfect friend who never complains and thinks we are always right but i think the thing like mary shelley is saying in frankenstein is can we go too far and do we see the tragedy we might create in making an artificial life form just because we can do it the science is there so let's go ahead and then make it for sale too Make it easy and laid back. Make a little money on the side too. In making something that has good intentions. But in the end it becomes horrifying, it becomes something we don't like. And so we have made this very sad creation, that will only know sadness and rejection. Something that can't be fully human. This sort of dysfunctional slave that we end up hating because it's different from us. So we reject it and are cruel to it. Or worse yet, it might be something that even hates us. And wants to kill us. Or in a completely rational sense, it might see us humans as something that is imperfect, so we need to be eliminated. 
You remember the spider that lived in the bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched. The egg hatched? Yeah. And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. Implants. Those aren't your memories. They're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's nieces. I've seen things. Ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. this being because I could. But you haven't thought about the consequences. I have to make him. But it is even so. The fallen angel becomes a malignant devil. Yet even that enemy of God and man had friends and associates even in his desolation. In my own desolation, oh God, I'm alone. Why? Why did you make me what you did? Not even having the kindness to give me a name, only but to call me a monster. Please take away my sadness and my life. It is you that are evil, my creator. It is you that made me, and me, not you. go into this in a very 
unusual situation that happened in June of 1816. It would have been enough, just enough, if Percy Shelley and Lord Byron would have met. Because these are two great intellectuals of their time. Young, good-looking, highly educated. One was a fantastic athlete who alone by his athletic accomplishments could have been famous. But tied to that was he's one of the best-looking men of all of Europe. And he was intellectual and he was a gifted artist and a poet. And he had all, it seemed like he, there wasn't anything he didn't have except maybe a baseline on common sense because he had so much. And he also was extremely wealthy to add to that. <laughs> he pretty much could do what he wanted. And his concern though was to bring Europe out of this dark age into this enlightened time where everybody had had liberty and, and the rights of man. People like Thomas Paine in the United States, which were all founded on this, this, this fantastic rom romantic movement, at least partly and the French Revolution and the rights of man. And these two, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, could have alone had a fantastic meeting. But we have other people that join on this very haunted time period. And a few months before that, in April, Mount Tabora in Indonesia, it just blew apart and, one, and, and the most powerful explosion in modern times took place and actually rattled the entire climate of, of, of the planet and suddenly in summer you're having snow and you're having very cold weather and you're having things happen in places that shouldn't happen and people are farms are not able to come up with their yields and, and the crops and, and and the food and the thing that are not there and it's snowing <laughs> in places in the world where it doesn't snow during the summertime. The climate is, is, is radically changed and you have these fantastic storms just racing across the globe because the climate, the climate temperature is dropping and you're having what some even called a sort of miniature ice age. And so when Percy and Mary and her sister Claire went to Geneva to, to get together and explore the arts and the liberty of, of human beings and, and to, to channel all these spirits uh, and just to talk about all these intellectual things, the Greeks and the Romans and, and these, guys, these people were highly educated. And so when they went to Geneva, Switzerland, uh, in, these, in this month of May, and in particular in June, there were these just, in some ways, awful storms that, that none, none of these people had ever experienced. In fact, we haven't experienced such things since. Inches and inches of rain came down, then it would clear up and the sun would come out and it wouldn't get too warm. And they would go out on their boats on this beautiful lake and they would talk and they would have parties and, and celebrate love and celebrate in, being intellectual and the, and the potentiality of America. What would America be? The great, you know, this fantastic place where everyone could be free and have rights and explore the chance to have their own, their own world and their own land. And so 
during this time period it was just it's just amazing and then these huge storms would move in over Lake Geneva and it, as it turns out we now know from the science that in particular Switzerland was hit hard by fantastic storms caused by the volcanic activity and the ash that was thrown up in the atmosphere that brought down the temperature and birthed these these tremendous thunderstorms that moved into to, to this area where Lake Geneva was. And so they couldn't stay on the boat. It got so bad they couldn't even stay in the boats on the lake anymore because it came this stormy, incredible, uh, violent place to be in. And as a result of these storms, they went to this beautiful three-story mansion that Percy and his and his physician friend uh, John Dory were staying, the, the Villa Diodati. Joined him there in this most beautiful mansion uh, with all these big rooms and it was you know must have been an interesting place with fireplaces and gothic setups and 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 big windows you could see the lightning and thunder out outside it must have been amazing lord byron had with him this dr john Pedoria, and he himself was had graduated with as a medical doctor and when he was only 19 he was an intellectual he'd written books he was gifted and is a gifted musician and the, these people were highly unusual and they came together on this this fantastic night where the earth is nights where the earth is rumbling and, and it's raining hard and, and 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 they decided to talk about death and about communing with spirits on the other side and about about moving into other realms of, of the spirit world and, and, and reading ghost stories. They read all these, these ghost stories these, in, in this book, this German ghost story book that was in French. And then, you know, because, because uh, John Padori, he had been, he'd been a surgeon. He had been schooled in surgery and worked on bodies. And then he, he, he talked extensively about doing surgeries on people and about working on cadavers of dead people and I don't know if you've been around cadavers I have a bit because when I went to art school we drew we had classes where we go downstairs in the medical department and we would draw these cadavers that that are down there which is a strange experience when you have a, a room full of dead people sitting you know partially dissected and open on a table and you draw them you draw their their body parts for accuracy and so John Padori, he would talk extensively about this and about what it's like to open a body up in a, in a cavity of a body and what are the chances of, of reanimating a dead body. And, and beforehand, before uh, Percy, Shelley, and uh, Mary uh, Good, Goodwin, who will later become Mary Shelley, before they came to Switzerland, had attended these fantastic um, shows put on where these people would, would, would set up on a stage and take electricity and wires and, and, and uh, transporters electricity and they would try to reanimate uh, dead body parts of animals with electricity and make hands and fingers move and, and it was if nothing else it was a fantastic light show you know um, comparable to what Telsa did you know years, years later um, and so galvanization of, of, of electricity to animate dead flesh and body parts was, was something that was being looked at. And science was still fairly new then, but it had the potentiality to go places never, you'd never gone before. Could, could 
Could science create a human itself without using God or the Creator? Could it animate uh, a body? Could it make one from scratch? These are questions that went, that came up that night at Diodati, lightning going off and rumbling, and there's even a chance they may have used opium to to enhance that. And I've taught, we've we've talked along the way about alien contact, you know, and UFOs and flying saucers, and. Are these experiences actually something that happens physically, or is it something that happens interdimensionally? And this is a question that's come up lately with alien contacts. And I've talked about when you, lose, when you use these very powerful hallucinogenic plant medicines that, uh, in the Amazon and that are transported here to the States, and you participate in these events where your mind is altered and you begin to, to commune with different entities, with different types of reality, something that indigenous environments have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. And somehow we think we're civilized and we think that we're that this nine to five reality this is it and i think what you realize when you have experiences such as this is the ability to open up other realms and to open up other doors is it evil yes is it good yes or is it just so new and so unusual and so beyond our comfortable context of things that we don't know what to do with it so we call it evil we call it dark or we call it divine and it just it's just something radically new and so we don't know how to define it so that's one of the ways to look at it and the questions remain is how much should you be doing this and how much shouldn't you be doing it in, in june of 1816 at lake geneva the, all these you set in these kind of discussions where you have where you talk about these things and you open up these Greek texts and these Latin texts and you read them and you read stuff by the great magician and Dr. John Dee from the Middle Ages and and how he would commune with angels and talk to other beings and you know you open these things up and you start to talk about them and there's a lot of you there and you have different experiences and it's it's amazing what can happen it's amazing the kind of environment you can create by talking about these things by acting them out by people getting up and emotionally expressing seeing a being from another world whether it's true or not it has a powerful impact on, on the people there. And this is going on in this, this beautiful mansion uh, on, on the shores of Lake Geneva while the waves are, are, are raging out there and the, and the lightning's cracking and the rain's pouring down like it never has. It's just amazing what, what must have happened on those nights. And Mary Shelley talks about this. And this is... This is a girl, an 18-year-old, that would write one of the most amazing novels of her time, Frankenstein. In fact, it would, the, the author was anonymous for a few years, and it was thought that a man wrote the book. But you, you see that that, was, that book and, and, and another one that was about vampires, vampires, came out of this. Two great genres, not only in gothic horror, but in science fiction impossibilities and then you have this person Mary Shelley who's been involved in great tragedies she's already lost one little girl her first pregnancy and she's nursing a son and then also this is the on the on the advent of what would become very tragic ends to almost every life that was there uh, 
and all would die young except for one. One would live to be in her 80s, the rest would die tragically or very young, including Mary Shelley, who died, I think, was 50 years old. But amazing that she was able, out of all these people, because the challenge was to write a ghost story, to write something that was part of what they had been talking about over the, all these nights and looking into the mysteries of life. What could be more interesting than that? You know, we watch TV so much now and everything's done for us and we watch movies and the books are written for us that often we don't experiment with these things. We just lay back and they, we let them happen. We turn on the TV. $405 and, and Libby. $410. There are the four bids. The actual retail price is... Crack a beer and watch all of it, and it's done for us. But these people really did it. They wanted to be involved in the real thing. And so fantastic things happened. And one of the things that, that Mary remarks on is somewhere we think after midnight she awoke to this fantastic vision, dreamlike, where she's seen this, this being that Dr. Frankenstein creates. Uh, Victor Frankenstein, this intellectual that, that takes science to new realms and he figures out the flaws in the older pseudo-alchemy sciences he sees that modern science has the possibilities of making a human being and then he goes ahead and makes one and not seeing the consequences of his action which in the book he never fully accepts frankenstein it's a very interesting book because you, it, it approaches it's not just a book from one viewpoint but a, a, a ship captain tells his sister through letters that he met met this fantastic intellectual Victor Frankenstein. The monster is not called Frankenstein. The monster sadly has no name and that's part of the tragedy uh, that he's neglected and pushed aside. So the ship captain tells his sister of meeting this person in the in the cold ice arctic. He meets this emaciated person that's dying and and then you get that story and then you get uh, you get Victor Frankenstein's story of creating this, this super being, this superhuman, through the processes of science and the whole tragedy involved in that. And then you get also the narrative of this fantastic super being that he created and the tragedy of, of not being accepted. And, and, and unfortunately, he wanted to create a beautiful being, but the being became ugly. Some things went wrong in the experiment, and uh, he didn't, he was shockingly ugly. Over eight feet tall, I believe. But he was superhuman. His strength and his intellectual abilities, even by himself, he was able to learn languages and to read all these books and and, and basically unaccepted by, by his creator, Dr. Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, unaccepted. And so he becomes this, this monster, this, this enraged being that can't be loved, that wanted to be loved but cannot be loved because he looks hideous, because he's not accepted. And so it's this, just this fantastic, amazing time period, and especially that night, uh, on the shores of Lake Geneva in 1816 when when all these things were birthed and in fact in some ways you could say the age of science fiction the age of the age of the fantastic was born there and made made 
made into something real. I think one of the things that Mary Shelley seen, the young Mary Shelley, was that men don't always, that intellectual men with great uh, capacities to, to, to think and to stretch the imagination and make it into reality sometimes go too far. And of course she's seen that capacity in the three men that were in that mansion that night. And all their intellectual talking and the things that they have done, she, she saw the potential out it go way too far. So one, one wonders sometimes if she sensed people like Oppenheimer and the great atomic bomb and other things that would come later. You know, maybe that's going too far, but I think, I think the young, beautiful Mary Shelley sensed that maybe not science itself, but human beings um, and their egos could go too far and make something very tragic, make something that, that was indefinitely horribly sad. After years of hearing my mother read the beautiful poetry of the Romantics, uh, something that she uh, studied in school, as well as uh, just the pure love of uh, Romantic reading and literature, um, and hearing so much of Percy Shelley and Lord Byron and William Wordsworth and all these people that some were almost mystical, and just for nothing else, the sheer beauty of their uh, words after getting older, it's interesting that Mary Shelley, uh, a woman, shines out from that. This young 17-year-old seems to have something that these profound and celebrated celebrities of the day didn't have. And it wasn't until later on that Mary Shelley gained a reputation for her, for her talents and for her beautiful heart. Mary you know, Godwin Shelley, this, this beautiful person, even when she was so young, that could do so much and always had the gift of heart and foresight, even to see into the most grotesque and, and dark things in life, that there's potential maybe to, to move out of that into a different, into a different kind of hopefulness, but always to be wise uh, and, and find balance. I think you see that more in Mary Shelley at the end of her life. She lived this extremely radical life, challenging so many ideals and so many laws, and losing her husband in a tragic drowning when he was, I think, only 30 years old. And Lord Byron, who died fighting in a war, I believe, in Greece. And this John Padori that I think committed suicide um, at, at a very young age. Um, and it's amazing that she kept heart and she, she kept these journals and she edited her beloved. She never stopped loving her, her husband, Percy Shelley, and always knew his great lyrical gift. He still stands as one of the great poets in the English language. For me, the, the greatest. He's the one I love the most. But comparable to that is his wife, Mary Shelley, who I think somehow, somehow shines out above above, you know, these, these tremendous intellectuals and gifted and beautiful people was this young woman that had the ability to, to see and to feel and to keep things together. And I think sometimes we forget that wisdom. And when 
we get too radical, we get too pushing things, like Victor Frank, Dr. Victor Frankenstein, did you push things so far and then it's too late, you can't go back and all these tragedies fall in place. And of course there was immense tragedy in uh, Mary Shelley's life. And uh, she's one of the great women, at least for me. I, I, I've been strongly influenced in my life by women and she surely is at the top. So, at the end of this broadcast, here's to you, Mary Godwin Shelley, and the amazing person you, you were and still are some over 200 years later. Oh, come to me in dreams, my love. I will not ask a dearer bliss. Come with the starry beams, my love, and press mine eyelids with thy kiss. T'was thus, as ancient fables tell, love visited a Grecian maid, till she disturbed the sacred spell, and woke to find her hopes betrayed. But gentle sleep shall veil my sight, and Psyche's lamp shall darkling be, when, in the visions of the night, thou dost renew thy vows to me. Then come to me in dreams, my love, I will not ask a dearer bliss. Come with the starry beams, my love, and press mine eyelids with thy kiss. Had I only found the way to say that I love you, that I could say it in the sky, and in the earth, and in the wind and the water, and yet I fall short of saying it the right way, that I love you. When I have fears that I may cease to be before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books in charactery hold like rich garners the full ripened grain, when I behold upon the night-starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance, and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance, and when I feel Fair creature of an hour, and I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power of unreflecting love. Then on the shore of the wide world I stand alone, and think, till love and fame to nothingness do sink.
This is In Between Stations Radio.